right now it's 5.15 p.m. on Sunday, March 21st, and we're in Brooklyn, New York at an anti-Asian hate protest. I mean, hate has always been happening in our world. Just right now, we are speaking about it because it's been more apparent. We've just been living in this world full of hate for too long. So it's just a matter of time as we speak up for the hate that we've been facing as a community. You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. I mean, I think it's important for people to be aware of all of these incidents that are going on this summer with Black Lives Matter and now with these recent spates of anti-Asian violence, I think that people need to be aware that it's happening so that they know it's in their communities and that it's something that we all need to be concerned about no matter what your race. On March 16th, eight people were killed in a targeted attack on massage workers in Atlanta. This week, we are sending radical love and care to our AAPI neighbors, to Georgia, and to everyone fighting to end violence against Asians and Asian Americans, immigrants and migrants, sex and massage workers, and anyone criminalized for their survival. As an Asian person, I've experienced this my whole life, and now I think that it's just like a tender that was lit, and now it's, it's blowing up, and it's really dangerous. It's been a long, long time coming, but we come here for the long haul in Brooklyn, USA. Yet again, Asian migrant women had to be on the front lines as the ones that were murdered to remind state officials, to remind the cops, to remind the United States government that Asian people are dying. Stop Asian hate now! 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 Throughout the course of this battle, you will hear those words. And we mean those words. We want Asian hate to stop when? Anti-Asian, anti-immigrant sentiments are embedded in the fabric of U.S. society. It is the norm. It is the identity. It is not the exception to the U.S. way of life. If we don't recognize that the status quo was always meant to not necessarily just hurt, but to always suppress communities of color, marginalized communities, then we won't want to change the whole system. We will do little tiny fixes that are just band-aids, but that ultimately will not change anything. So my name is Dr. Sherry Wang, and I'm an associate professor of counseling psychology. Uh, I'm a licensed counseling psychologist. I'm a researcher, and I'm also an anti-racist educator. Anti-racist education is really about teaching about systemic oppression and really teaching folks that it isn't just about being non-racist, but understanding how racism is infused in the air we breathe. And so everybody is racist. And to really, you know, want to fight back against all of these things that we're seeing, all of these injustices, it means we're having to fight upstream. It really, in some ways, is about understanding how we are programmed to then decide consciously how we want to be now that we know. Committee on the Judiciary, Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties will come to order. I welcome everyone to today's hearing on discrimination and violence against Asian Americans. A major problem right now in the way we talk about and the way we 
understand or conceptualize anti-Asian racism, it's a problem to think that this is an exception, that it's not American. And that is the problem with politicians, including Biden, saying things like stop scapegoating, blaming, attacking Asian Americans. It is un-American. There are simply some core values and beliefs that should bring us together as Americans. One of them is standing together against hate. It is inherently un-American for anyone to discriminate and launch vicious hate crimes against an Asian American. This type of bigotry was un-American. Totally un-American. Hate can have no safe harbor in America. We want it to be un-American, but it is actually very, very American. Naming white supremacy, that's going to be a key part of our willingness to recognize that that is the status quo. Name incidents like this as white supremacy and not domestic terrorism, because the term terrorism really came out of investing in more language and policing and surveillance of black and brown and Arab and Muslim individuals and communities. This is white violence. This is white supremacy. Anti-Asian sentiments have been consistently invoked as forms of patriotism and loyalty to the U.S. so that Asian Americans have been persistently painted as outsiders and foreigners and invaders or, you know, whatever the opposite of an American is. And so it dates back to the early 19th century, late 18th century, when the West was threatened not only by Asia in terms of its, its political, economic, military power, but that, oh my gosh, there's a power that is non-white and they're threatening. So we have to paint them in these really negative ways. There is a long history of Asian Americans being subjected to violence throughout the, the history of this country. My name is Joyce Moy. I'm the executive director of the Asian American Asian Research Institute at the City University of New York. I am a professor and former practicing attorney. I am the fourth generation of my family in the United States. And I have to say it that way because my great-grandfather, grandfather, and father were not permitted to become U.S. citizens. I was born in the United States and as a result became a citizen. But the level of exclusion from participation in this country went on for a very, very long time. People don't know this, but Indians were not permitted to become naturalized U.S. citizens until 1956. That's a long history. It's not just against East Asian communities. It is also against the South Asian communities. The formulation of Asian in the United States, it's a construct that only applies in the United States. There was a time in history where there was mass hysteria. It was promoted largely by the press, by the politicians, uh, about the fact that Asians were coming into this country, that they were a degenerate class of people. They smoked opium. They did not look like us, um, that they were dirty uh, and diseased. Th th this is starting to sound a little familiar, right? Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bi bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Why do you keep using this? A lot of it comes say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. We have always racialized infectious diseases. COVID-19, SARS, Ebola was really kind of nicknamed like uh, black disease. 
swine flu, Mexican immigrant disease, MERS, for example, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. And the language we use for immigrants and immigration is similar, that it's invasive, that it dominates, right? That you can't see it coming. Those parallels are so powerful and so strong and have converged really in, in, in what has happened for the Asian American community. Those stereotypes made it easy to dehumanize Asians, made it easy to exclude them, to attack them, to bar them from starting businesses, allowing us to go to school and attend schools with whites, barring us from owning land. There were laws that were put into place that made it difficult for Chinese businesses to be able to compete, and the rules were different for the white community. To allow us into this country meant a destruction of their civilization. In the 1920s, acts that were passed by our government limited immigration to the United States. Quotas were established for different countries, allowing only a specified number of immigrants to enter each year. And so the stream of immigration was slowed. And we continue to hear things like this. It was not that long ago when there was a city council member who represented Flushing who talked about Asians coming into Flushing as hordes of people, coming in with bags of money, as if we were somehow going to, to corrupt the American way of life. Over 16% of New York City is Asian. And yet we're hearing that in neighborhoods like Flushing, people are being attacked in neighborhoods where the predominant population is Asian, where you think that people have gotten to know us as community members, where you think that there would be natural allies that would step forward and, and speak up for you, and it's, it's not happening. I collected data from May to October asking about Asian American experiences of anti-Asian racism. And of the data I collected, there were about 200 or so participants. There was only one, one incident where there was intervention, where somebody stopped, intervened and said, hey, this is not okay. Which means 199 or more incidents in those situations, nobody did anything. They just let it happen. I want to be careful not to generalize, right, as though there is one way of experiencing racial trauma. There really isn't. But I think what's really important to know about the racial trauma of Asian Americans historically and presently is that our experience, I think, can be summed up in, in two key words, which is invisibility and isolation. It's not just what happens in terms of the actual hate crime itself or the actual racist incident itself. It's also what happens afterwards. Afterwards, when Asian Americans do find trusted folks to share this information with, the reaction they get is one that is quite gaslighting, actually. It is minimizing their experiences, it is denying their experiences, it is questioning and even mocking their experiences. Our suffering is not being seen, our trauma is, is denied. So there's that invisibility, and we see it also being underreported in the media. We see it often excluded. Anti-racist policies oftentimes omit Asian Americans. Funding resources oftentimes don't include Asian Americans. So it is about our exclusion and our visibility in these ways. And then our isolation. We 
seek out our support among BIPOC communities. But the BIPOC community may not recognize us. So the invisibility and isolation part, we can help one another in community and our cross-solidarity with one another, cross-racial solidarity in particular. During the civil rights movement in the 60s, there was tremendous support from the Japanese American community for the civil rights actions of the African American community. One of the reasons was because of the Japanese internment. Here in the land of Buffalo Bill, the government is erecting model camp towns, towns in which they'll live unmolested, not as prisoners, but free to work and paid by the United States government. The NAACP had sent representatives to those internment camps, and they wrote a report where they said that the filth and the dirt and the unbearable heat that the people encountered caused the death of the elderly and babies in those camps. They spoke up against what was happening to the Japanese Americans. So during the civil early parts of the civil rights movement in particular, many Japanese Americans joined this movement towards civil rights. There are a number of very well-known Asian Americans that were supportive of Malcolm X, for example. Good evening and welcome to Freedom is a Constant Struggle with your host, Kilu Nyasha. I'm very pleased to welcome as our guest this evening, Yuri Kochiyama. Asian Americans must be more vocal, visible, and take stands on crucial issues. Hopefully, Asians will side with the most dispossessed, oppressed, and marginalized, remembering our own history. Asian Americans have also fostered relationships with, for example, the Latino farm workers in history as well. The Spanish word for strike, huelga, echoes in the pleasant valleys where most of the nation's grapes are grown. where in an attempt to play one group against the other, the system attempted to create divisions, but the two groups and the leadership got together and decided that they were not going to allow it to happen. I think they're uh, used to treating the Mexican-American and the Filipino like uh, slaves, I would say so. They, they don't want to treat us like humans. And the reason they, are, they don't want to negotiate with us is because they don't want a farm worker to sit across their table and demanding price for their work and uh, the things they wanted in their contracts. We are willing to fight for justice until we get it. These are not things that we hear about. We need to know one another's histories, you know? And the United States makes it a point to make sure we don't know each other's history. My safety depends on your safety. My care depends on your care bystander intervention, but also to intervene on the generational trauma that all of our people continue to experience as Asian, as Black, as Arab, as Latinx, as people who believe that our queerness cannot be pathologized, that our bodies can no longer be criminalized, that we will not stand for the policing, the incarceration and detainment of our communities. The experience of racial trauma for Asian Americans is unique, as is, I think, all racial ethnic groups, that we have different histories and that we have racism manifest differently to oppress us. 
Biden's executive, you know, statement or order condemning anti-Asian racism. That is just language. Where's the funding to go into providing culturally sensitive healthcare systems that go into translation, accessible forms of care? We don't have these things, and so we're being asked to just pick ourselves up and work with what we got. And so it's no wonder then that across communities of color, we feel like we have to fight for resources. We have to fight for attention when really we all have racial trauma. And what we really need to do is provide the space and the safety for people to be able to talk about it, to be validated for it, to be seen for it, and then to be able to heal from it. Last year, we spoke with BDSM practitioner and sex worker rights advocate Yin Q and Red Canary Song co-director Kate Zen about how sex workers, and specifically migrant massage parlor workers in Flushing, Queens, were weathering the pandemic. This week, we're re-airing some of that audio. Here's Yin Q. So I'm literally sitting like in halfway in and out of my closet, which opens up in my bedroom to be my desk. <laughs> so I have a closet that opens and on one side of my, um, the inside of the closet door is lined with like all my whips and my leather cane, you know, my leathers and my canes and the belts and like the crops and, you know, all my erotica fiction as well as sort of the theoretical ones, a lot of feminist and gender theory books. I'm Yin Q. Um, I use pronouns of both she and they, and I'm a BDSM educator and writer, um, event producer, and sex worker rights activist. I started professional DOM work um, back in 1998. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a long time. Bondage. Whether it's a piece of hemp rope, heavy cuffs, leather cuffs, a metal head cage. There's a design artistry to the puzzle piecing of anatomy and equipment. I actually remember the day that like one of my clients working on this kind of technology, the Zoom technology, I guess it was 15 years ago when he was like, yeah, one day, you know, we'll just be sitting and having like meetings, but on your screen. And I was like, yeah, but still you're going to want the bodies in front of you, you know, like for that human touch and that human connection and chemistry and trust and whatever. But yeah, now here we are. The people who do have access to online resources obviously are, are doing the same as everyone else is doing. They're, you know, finding community online. But because there's SESTA-FOSTA, there's only certain ways that people can gather without their gatherings being banned online under the sex working titles. You might think of the rights of sex workers as confined just to the particular people placed at risk by this law, SESTA-FOSTA, but I want to make clear that these laws eroded internet freedom for everyone. SESTA-FOSTA 
wiped a lot of sex work online, banning people's websites uh, under the sex working titles, Craigslist, Rent Boy, Instagram sites, Facebook, um, you name it, it's still rolling out. People who used to use websites to vet clients, who used to use websites, safe spaces to connect and interact, and those spaces went away because Sesta and Boston, and I want to make clear, the further thing that that portends is censorship, corporate censorship. People are being really cautious, and it's really hard because most sex workers can't just, you know, switch automatically into doing cam work or video work or phone sex because those are not the mediums that they're tuned to. It's not the skills that they are tuned to. The work that I do with clients, all of my sessions, of course, have canceled these past few weeks. I'm not doing remote sex work because... Um, I'm 45. I'm not going to get on, on a cam or a video and be, you know, do cute looks right now. Um, and then workshops and then other work have also shifted. Right now, I don't know how overall how sex workers are adapting to remote work. I know that the massage parlor workers that we support in Flushing, their work has been impacted for three months, not just three weeks. My name is Kate Sun, and I've been doing sex worker rights organizing for about 13, 14 years now. I am a organizer with Red Canary Song and one of the co-founders. Red Canary Song came into existence in November of 2017 after the death of massage worker Song Yang in Flushing. She was killed during a police raid. The night that Song Yang was killed, another one of her colleagues also attempted to escape by jumping out the back window. Yet another colleague hid on the fire escape all night, shivering in the cold until morning for fear of encountering the police. How can help and rescue be delivered in the form of handcuffs to people who have already been traumatized by these so-called rescuers? Some of the other folks who are working on that street dreaming of a sex worker labor union formed in the aftermath to have more people power and to push back against both repressive policing and some of the ways in which massage parlor workers are portrayed, which lead to a very racist form of violence against these workers. Sex worker rights sits in the intersection of so many important movements from racial justice to criminal justice reform to queer and transgender rights to women's rights and you know class economic justice. Criminalization is a form of complete marginalization of individuals, uh, putting them at the hands of police. Under sort of sex work criminalization, one, workers are afraid to call the cops when an incident of violence happens. They're more afraid of being arrested by the cops than they feel they could actually get help from police officers. So that puts them in a very vulnerable place. 
And then two, cops themselves, because they know the street workers of a particular community, they often re-arrest the same people over and over again. And often you have these cases of cops that take advantage of the situation. Right now, sexual abuse is the second most common form of cop misconduct. And we see this frequently when it comes to the case of immigrant massage parlor workers and karaoke bar workers. In Flushing, there's been sort of scandals of police corruption and taking bribes from karaoke bars and having these sort of deals with the bosses of these bars to be able to have cop discounts or to demand sexual services from workers, essentially rape. Because sex workers are criminalized, they, they're not entitled to rights as long as this work is not recognized as work, but as, as a criminal activity. As a result, the cop then becomes judge, jury, and prosecutor, and this puts an extraordinary amount of power in the hands of people that have a history of abusing that power. In 2016, arrests for unlicensed massage went up by 2,700%. Um, that is a disgusting statistic, and what it reflects is numerous lives that have been shattered by NYPD arresting people for simply surviving. The three different Chinatowns in New York, Brooklyn Sunset Park, Manhattan's Chinatown, and Queens Flushing were hit pretty hard early on. Street vendors and small shops were seeing that customers were afraid to come into Chinatown, and people within Chinatown also were beginning to quarantine. They had already been going through a, over a year of pretty heavy policing after the Robert Kraft case in February of the previous year. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots? Yes, sir. And what is he being charged with? Soliciting another to commit prostitution. A very famous Patriots football owner was caught in a sting on an Asian massage parlor in Florida. There was increase in policing throughout the country and in New York, Flushing particularly. Storefronts that both provided legal massage and also maybe subsidizing that with, you know, a hand job or with other types of work closed down. So it's been a pretty devastating blow the last year or so to the entire industry, not just in New York, but across the country. And I think COVID-19 really kind of put the nail on the coffin, so to speak. There are certain sectors of the sex industry where people seem to have adapted better than others. Dancers and, you know, dominatrices and some sex workers were able to use like OnlyFans and other kind of internet platforms to subsidize their work. Massage parlor workers and a lot of immigrant workers are struggling more with this, partially because of their use of like internet platforms and also because like language is always already a barrier in this work. Finding digital alternatives to massage work hasn't really been happening. On the other hand, people are experimenting and trying to figure out other ways of making income, doing house cleaning or figuring out wherever else they could often make a little bit of money off the table. People are also still surviving and have contacts and have ways of reaching out to some of the people that have supported them in the past. Sex workers have always cultivated various kinds of relationships and ways of surviving. 
So our group, we've engaged in mutual aid and support, connecting folks to grocery deliveries with the Queen's Mutual Aid Group, and also stipend money, some of which was fundraised by other sex workers, uh, like Swap Brooklyn. That's a group of sex workers who are generally not migrants, and many of which have found ways to continue working digitally. So there's a lot of mutual aid happening within the sex worker community. We've also worked alongside other coalitions to fight for things like canceling of rent and expansion of funds for workers that are excluded from federal funds. Housing has always been the biggest fear and the biggest issue. It's always the biggest expense. And so for people who have not been making money for months, having the housing courts open up again and having evictions start again, this is something that's terrifying for a lot of folks. looking at incarceration, mass incarceration, we're not talking enough about how women are affected. The issue of gender as it intersects with race and criminalization, that's where so many sex workers sit. And police abolition opens up so many conversations that weren't possible before. Now that the greater system of advocacy and mainstream media is, is taking a look at what safety without policing looks like. They are beginning to borrow models and even language from sex worker movements. For a very long time now, sex workers have often talked about mutual aid and they've talked about having to build safety outside the system through creating whisper networks, helping each other through bad date lists, protecting each other from clients that are known to steal or to be violent and having to basically act as if police have already been abolished and do not exist. I do think that sex workers, I think that queers, and I think that um, people who are in kink really understand this idea of community care, communication, and mutual aid better than anyone else out there. The queers have been doing it through the AIDS crisis. That idea of supporting one another through crisis is within our history. It's within our ideas of service to community. This moment in kind of political consciousness is really interesting because suddenly you have people mainstreaming the word uh, mutual aid. Oftentimes in that mainstream form of that use, it kind of just means like donation. But I think we also want to like implore people to look at the more political ideas behind mutual aid. Mutual aid coming out of anarchist, anarcho-feminist framework meaning like how do you provide services and support to people without relying on a state that can be potentially violent or racist. You know, sex workers have been practicing those forms of care for each other for, for a very long time. Sex worker rights is about uh, migrant workers' rights. It's about gentrification. It's about housing. It's about, it's about abolitionist movement. And all of it's also tied to environment, you know. How we, how we care for our earth and how we care for each other is all one and the same. Just as the term Asian American can apply to people from as diverse places as Japan, Bangladesh, or Tajikistan, the term Chinese-American can also be a gross oversimplification. Past waves of Chinese immigration to New York came from areas like Hong Kong and Taiwan, 
though more recently, and especially in the Chinatown section of Brooklyn's Sunset Park, Chinese immigrants are more likely to hail from the coastal Fujian province. To learn more about this community, we spoke with Pastor Zephaniah Sung of Sunset Park's Church of Grace to Fujianese as he prepared for a Sunday service days after the horrendous attacks in Atlanta. My name is Zephaniah Sung. I actually came up from Texas in 2019. I'm part of the Church of Grace to Fujianese church branches. And so a lot of these Asian churches, they come over as immigrants, but their kids grew up here. And so they hire younger guys like me, Asian Americans, or, you know, just different kinds of people that speak English to teach their kids. So I'm specifically an English minister at the Brooklyn branch. So I'm not Fujianese myself, and my dad's from Hong Kong, my mom's from Taiwan, but we are ethnically Chinese. So the Fuzhou area is like southeast, so they're more coastal, so closer to Hong Kong. And they're, they're big, like big on seafood. They're big exporters. Uh, sometimes people kind of joke that the Fuzhou area is like the 51st state of America because so many of them have actually come over to the States. Had more access to the U.S. because they're more coastal, so they're like the more used to export. Uh, the original Chinatowns were from Hong Kong, so they're Cantonese and Manhattan. But that's kind of like slowly dying away because uh, China's kind of pushing away the Cantonese language uh, spoken in Guangzhou and Hong Kong. So it's kind of sad, but, but China's trying to like push for a national language. And that means that some of the smaller folk areas, town areas, they, they lose their kind of nuances. So the Fujianese, they speak Chinese, but they also speak Fuzhou or Fujianese. And so everything's like a little bit different. So every province has their own style. Like they all speak the national Mandarin, but they also have their own distinct languages. Uh, so you kind of see this interesting intersection of immigration, language, preservation, but also like heritage. If you're coming to the Brooklyn Chinatown area, it's probably around 6th to 9th, maybe even 10th Avenue in between the 50s to 60s streets. And as you're coming in, like Chinatown has a lot of these like dessert shops and lots of haircut places. So it's kind of strange. Like you could have like three or four dessert shops on the same row, four to five haircut places in the same row, but it's just kind of like what they're known for. Like, so maybe some places have like Starbucks. We have like these dessert places and these hair shop places. So there's a lot of Fujianese in this like, Eighth Avenue area. Now there are pockets of like people from Taiwan and Hong Kong. Uh, so if you if you go to a certain restaurants and they have something called dim sum, those are more Cantonese or from Hong Kong. And so the Chinese word for it is like small eats. So they come in like little like plates. You, you get it in like small packages. It's like a brunch type of setting, and that's kind of like more of a Hong Kong type of eatery. But a lot of the Fujianese, you know, seafood. A lot of noodles, a lot of some of their specialties like peanut noodles for breakfast. They love that kind of stuff. But yeah, a lot of this area, you could tell by the food that they produce, like where they're from. So I think in terms of other groups of Chinese, some people might feel like the Fujianese are maybe more lower class. Like, like definitely if you're closer in the city like Beijing, like you think you're more like upper class Chinese. So they might be like, oh, these groups of people like depending on where you are, they, they might have a certain like 
prejudice towards that group, which is kind of funny because you would say, like, you guys are all from China. But it, it might be saying something like, oh, you guys are, like, from the South, so you're more country, or, like, oh, you're from the Northeast, you're more elitist. So it's kind of, like, people don't process that because they just think we're all Chinese, but there's definitely groups of prejudices and pockets of that, like, I wouldn't say hatred, but just a sense of, like, contentment towards those who are different. There's definitely, like, a lot of prejudices that the older generation holds to because, you know, they have friends who may be African-American, Hispanic, but sometimes the parents kind of raise them, like, you got to watch out for all these kinds of people. So it's kind of tough, like, trying to, like, navigate through that. We're hoping that the younger generation acts like a bridge to help, you know, start healing, start raising awareness among the older generation. And because sometimes the older generation, they don't really like talking about their previous experiences. You know, it's all about the present and, you know, how much money can I make or whatever. But I think during the whole BLM stuff, a lot of the younger generation, they're able to talk to their parents like, hey, like, maybe we're not African-Americans, but what these minorities are going through, I'm sure maybe you went through something maybe similar or, you know, some type of issue that you had with, you know, coming over. And so I think some people were telling me they had positive experiences talking to their parents about, like, these situations with race. The shooting in Atlanta is, is particularly tough but him going at these certain places, you know, understanding that they're having people of Asian descent working there, it's definitely some type of issue with race there. And so you definitely feel all these emotions. And then, like, you now have to go to your church and, and make sure that these people who are also struggling with the same type of emotions, to, to let them know that, like, in some way, like, how do we navigate this as Asians, as Christians? But at the same time, like, the Bible tells us to forgive. And I, I think that's the hardest step. And and so there's this, you know, just a sorted group of feelings, emotions, and, and thoughts that if you mix them together, it can be very explosive or it can be something that comes about with a lot of healing and grace. So we're hoping that everything can be unpacked and something positive comes out of this. I think a lot of times in terms of sharing during the sermon, uh, it's trying to teach the Asian American community to 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 not only find their voice, but to understand that, like, collectively, like, we're, we're much stronger together. I think a lot of times we've dealt in isolation and felt like that's just what we had to do, like, keep your head down, work hard, get good grades, whatever. But at, at some point, like, we have to think about the next generation. And so instead of thinking, like, solely for ourselves, that so we could think collectively for the next group that comes through, I think we can defend them, help them have better understanding of like their personal rights in the U.S. and how do we deal with things in a nonviolent way, but also in a way that we can secure what we need. So it takes a lot of dedication and leadership to to focus on you know, things that will help our community and also not isolate us from other minorities. I think that's a big thing to not pinpoint and be like, okay, now we hate all groups of this or all groups of that people, but how can we really connect and grow bridges? Hi, Brooklyn. It's Maggie. I'm Marjorie Jerry. We're Asian Americans Against Hate Crimes. I would like to send you some love from Brookfield, Connecticut, by reading you a quote from Nelson Mandela. Can you repeat after me? Yeah. No one Hola. is born Evil. hating another person <laughs> because of the color of his skin. 
or his background, or his religion. <laughs> no religion. People, people must learn to hate. To hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love. Yeah. For love. Comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. And this quote is by Nelson Mandela. Good job. I love you, Jeffrey. Hey, <laughs> Brooklyn, USA is produced by me, Kyrell Palmer. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barry. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Mayumi Sato. With help this week from Wei and Jeffrey Sue. Thank you to Red Canary Song for the work they are doing and have done to protect Asian and migrant sex and massage workers in Flushing, Queens. We've linked their website in the show's notes, along with the thread uplifting survivors and families' direct funding requests. If you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on our podcast, check out the show's notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone. And if you like what you hear or think we missed something, Comment, like, and subscribe. And follow at Brick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit www.brickartsmedia.org slash radio. I ask you to say the Atlanta victim names with me. And as we are still waiting for two, an extra two deep breaths at the end to close our evening, give yourself the time to just sit and listen and be human. Xiaojie Tan, Yo Feng, Julie Park, Hyung Jiang Park, Dilani Ashley Yon, Paul Andre Mitchells. Thank you.